we are back once again to another episode of the mess hall here on views from the crow's nest a podcast about current or emerging trends in finance technology data science and various other domains of the business sector views from the crow's nest is produced in-house for fisher jordan a new york-based strategy consulting thought leadership and outsourcing firm helping business leaders to exchange complexity for clarity we provide decision makers in financial services and healthcare with clear strategies backed by analytics and enabled by tailored technology solutions. You can find out more about Fisher Jordan and our approach to delivering client value, career opportunities, and our work within our communities at fisherjordan.com. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N.com. If you're a regular listener, you probably know this spiel by now, but if you don't, The Mess Hall is a sub-series we do on Views from the Crow's Nest. Sometimes it's the Monday Mess Hall, other times it's the Midweek Mess Hall, but it's always The Mess Hall. In our regular full-length episodes, we interview subject matter experts, but for the time being, Mess Hall conversations are just between Fisher Jordan team members and are a little more off-the-cuff and focus more on current events or maybe just more time-sensitive topics than the trends we discuss in our longer-form episodes. We give ourselves a few hours to research the topics ahead of time, not enough to make us experts, but certainly enough to give us an opinion on whatever it is that we're talking about. Or maybe it's the other way around, not enough to have an opinion, but enough to be an expert. Then again, we do often say, although expertise is welcome, the conversation is the point on the mess hall, not necessarily finding solutions. I don't know, maybe you should take a listen and uh, make the decision for yourself what we're trying to do here. My name is Nathan Johnson, and I ask the questions. In this episode, I'm joined, as always, by Fisher Jordan managing partner Boaz Salek, who acts as my co-host here on Views from the Crow's Nest, and fellow Fisher Jordan team member Shedish Nanda. We unpack the implications of a dip in the secondary market for luxury items, specifically watches, and how luxury items can act as a store of value in an inflationary environment. Then we delve into two topics of regional concern. First, for East Indian audiences, we get into the role fintech serves in equalizing financial access for the underbanked and unbanked. Then for U.S. listeners, we follow up on the national security implications of the antitrust actions toward big tech. I tell you what, we cannot get enough of talking about antitrust against big tech around here. This was a fun conversation, so I'm going to get out of the way and let you get to it. Welcome back to the Mess Hall here on Fisher Jordan's Views from the Crow's Nest. Welcome, you guys, back to the mess hall. Glad we're doing this again. Great to have you back. Good to be here, Nathan. Happy to be here. So you guys have already seen the topic list that we're going to talk about today. Uh, Shittish, I feel like, I don't know what it is about having you on the podcast that we end up talking about luxury materials. I feel like the last time, maybe not the last time, but there was one time you were here that we were talking about luxury cars. And now here we are again. We're going to be talking about luxury watches, but there's a reason we're talking about this as our as our kind of kickoff topic. In one of our most recent episodes, we were talking about the idea of getting out of cash and getting into assets. Like, what is a what is a move towards security in light of a potential recession? So I'm curious about this topic as a follow up to that. The idea of really high-end luxury items being perceived as a stable investment. Our background here, again, linked in the description as always, is from an opinion piece from Bloomberg discussing a basically a, a pricing bubble in secondhand timepieces. There are three main luxury watches that were kind of part of this. A Rolex Daytona was one of them, a Patek Philippe Nautilus, 
and then Odd Mars Paget Royal Oak. Those are kind of the top three luxury watches that were at the forefront of a pricing bubble that was kind of driven last year by a combination of crypto, stock market gains, stimulus cash, and some speculation. But that's all starting to unravel now. So we're going to we're going to pull that apart as our starting topic today because economic uncertainty we've talked about would reasonably correlate with reduced spending on luxury items, but I'm interested in why these were initially seen as stable investments. Um so do you guys think that luxury items by recognized brands could function as stable investments like gold, like we talked about in a previous episode, or do you think this is all perception? Yeah, so at the onset, I would like to say, like we talk about luxury whenever I'm here, because obviously I ooze of luxury. And the testament to that would be that before the topics dropped, I had never heard of any of the three watches that you just mentioned. So. Yeah, so jokes apart, like my first thought on that is if the luxury items in general are considered as stable investments, one of the major reasons driving the demand up and the prices up in even in the secondary market, I think that's what the article refers that in the secondary market, the rates drop based on the current economic scenario. But I think one thing we need to consider is who is the demanding customers for behind luxury items. It's usually financially well-off people, right? So anytime a crisis happens, economic crisis happens, I believe that the financially wealthier people will recover fast so that in turn will kind of ensure that their investments are also stable so wherever they are invested like as long as it has some kind of materialistic value some some kind of backing i think since it is a desire it is a want of financially well off people who can walk through economic crisis better than others whatever they invest in is going to be considered a little more stable than whatever else the broader mass invests in. And let's not forget, Shirish, you being a big soccer fan, you know, if you look at some of these price tags that are being paid for EPL teams that, you know, when, when you own your, your first EPL team, you by definition, you will be owning a luxury item. So, you know, I wouldn't necessarily exclude that whole category of consumption for, for you in terms of your future investment path. That would be an absolute dream, but it's wishful thinking as of now. <laughs> you know, there's a few available ones like Nottingham and whatnot. I mean, maybe not like your first choice, but still. So back on the point, you know, like, so when you look at luxury items, Nathan, this actually, I think it harks back to a recent discussion that we had, I think, right here on this forum, which was why are cryptocurrencies performing more like equities and you know, if we're in an inflationary environment, why aren't things like gold kind of reaching new highs and stuff like that? And it could very well be when you look at these luxury items that these things are the new gold. And I don't think it just applies to luxury watches necessarily. That is a very interesting category, which I'll, I'll get into in a little bit. But there's something called the fine art. I, I think actually there are several fine art indices and also several fine wine indices that you can follow. And those have all been setting new highs too earlier this year until, you know, the thing started to, to cool off a little bit. But it does seem like the kind of the classic inflation hedges like gold or maybe even real estate may not be as relevant. And maybe these things are the new gold or the new real estate. So that's one, you know, that's kind of one factor to consider. The other thing that's specific to these watches is that they actually do have some of the characteristics that you would want in a classic inflation hedge. So for example, the idea of fixed supply, I mean, it's not a completely fixed supply because 
there are people in Switzerland making new Rolexes all the time, but it's a relatively fixed supply because the total number of Rolexes that exist in the world is only growing by a few, probably less than one or two percent per year. And it's also not very fungible, right? Because it's, you know, in order to create new Rolexes, you need to have new Swiss watchmakers who are highly trained in the in the profession and it takes a long time to even ramp that up. So it's, it's not like you can easily move a lever and say, okay, you know, the watches that I'm producing are now within 12 months, they're selling at double their retail price. So now I should produce more watches. It's not that easy because it takes years and even decades to train new watchmakers. So from a supply perspective, there's kind of that basic inflation hedge type of functionality. And then also from a fungibility in terms of in terms of fakes, right? So one of the concerns when you buy art or wine and stuff like that is that there are a lot of fakes out there. And, you know, you can probably read a few good books about like big, big art fakes or big wine fakes and stuff like that. But with watches, it's a lot easier to authenticate like the, the authenticity of these timepieces. So even from a fungibility perspective, you know, I, I think, Nathan, when you look at the watches, maybe this is the, the closest approximation that we have these days to an inflation hedge. Not to forget, like limited edition will ensure that it's not even continuously made. You have you ensure that it's limited, right, which only adds to its value. So you have this combination of exclusivity, limited availability, and then authenticity that, as you're saying, are kind of the markers of a classic stable investment. I'm also now really intrigued by the, the side topic that you brought up about what other things might start to fit into this category. Could you buy a share of a sports team as an inflation hedge? I don't know if that's a stupid thing to speculate about, but it feels like it would have things in common with these things that we're talking about, where obviously you can't really have like a fake sports team. Uh, there are things that would impact the value of it based on how good they are. I don't know. And then I know last time we talked about luxury cars in a different context, but I don't think that those would be the same thing because cars generally are a depreciating asset. So I guess the main thing that I'm getting at here is are we seeing a shift where the classic kind of luxury item category is expanding and this is becoming the thing that people treat as the more stable investment than something like gold since gold is not performing as we've discussed the way you'd expect it to in a inflationary environment football clubs i think i wouldn't tread beyond them being a speculative hedge but in general, football clubs, I feel like are uh, loss making. Most sports teams are loss making. So I wouldn't venture that direction. But yeah, I would agree that maybe there is a you know, shift in dynamics happening. And yeah, luxury items, like the next advice would be to start a systematic investment plan in a Rolex instead of mutual fund or something. No, I agree. Nathan, as, as I was reading through the set of subjects, it, it kind of triggered this memory in my head of this business meeting that I was in last December. And I distinctly remember like the main subject of discussion wasn't the business items, but everyone was talking about the latest watch that they bought and how much their watch had appreciated. And there was a guy there who was a watch dealer who was offering one. And something in, in my head was like, Boaz, this is probably a great time to short watches. And then you know, miraculously, that actually ended up being probably 
pretty close to the top of the watch market. So, you know, it's just interesting how that, that triggered that reaction. But probably like the moment that you have everyone talking about is is probably the place where it stops being effective as being a store of value, or at least temporarily so. Is there a watch index the same way there's a fine art and wine index like you're talking about? Like, how do you short watches? Well, this might be the, ne the next hot financial product out there, right? If you offer like options and derivatives and ability to short these things, that, that could probably be kind of the next big frontier for us. So it doesn't exist yet, but we need to create it. Is that what you're saying? If you build it, they will come, Nathan. <laughs> Some of them will come. How many remains to be seen? But I do wonder like, if they're all moving together, right? Like all luxury items like are going down together. So if, if we had to short something now, what would that be in luxury items? Or are they all, you know, one big class? If that's the case, then I think you can have something like a luxury index that that would be probably easier to create. Yeah, because as this article points out, there's there are kind of top performers within it. Like they they really had like these three, as you said, three brands that you'd never even heard of, but that were kind of the ones that were drawing the most attention in this yeah, case. The other thing you could do is you could create an anger index because we were just having our India Fair discussion last week, and you know having been part of that and then listening to it after the fact and realizing how many people lack just basic necessities like food and water. And then on the other side of the spectrum, people are throwing their money into, into luxury watches and, and luxury wines and whatnot. Like at some point there's going to be an anger index that need people need to track as well for this. So out of this discussion, we're not, we're identifying a handful of different things that, could be created and that would be a really interesting opportunity for someone some enterprising individual to actually create whether that's us whether that's shittish or anybody else here it could be could be fascinating let's go ahead and move on our kind of central topic as always kind of in the middle here give ourselves the most time to discuss it summary is how fintech can help equalize access to financial services in tough times background on this Increased cost of living, which we are starting to see, of course, rippling out in different ways in different countries. But that affects people who not only lack financial means, but just struggle to access money in general. So using technologies, fintech companies have been able to deliver financial products and services in ways that traditional companies cannot. That's kind of their whole thing. They become part of the financial inclusion agenda, that like that idea of access to financial services. Um, bridging the gap is a lot of the value prop that we have with fintech. So what I want us to discuss, there's that background article that we had that voiced a particular perspective that fintech can play a key role in easing the burden of a cost of living crisis. So do you, do you agree with that? And do you think that government involvement can improve the situation and ease the burden of private institutions to equalize access for the unbanked and underbanked? There are two things that I concluded after doing a bit of research on various articles on this. So one thing is like necessity is the mother of all inventions. So there was something called demonetization which happened in India. And at that time, like fintech, there's a fintech called Paytm and there are some smaller fintechs. They really stepped up and they really solved the cash problem. And that was in fact adopted by people who were the unbanked. Like they don't have a bank account, but they do have this fintech players account. That's that's amazing. Like for the, it's a big win for the fintech in general. But yeah, one more thing that I realized in the course of reading the article that the fintech 
did manage to you know uh, get into the space where it was untouched territory but if government doesn't regulate them or government intervention is not there it slowly becomes you know harmful they will they will start exploiting that so it's obviously it's unbanked means the person is unbanked to start with means there is a little bit uh, of a lack of financial literacy there fintech starts off as a helping hand but slowly if it turns to exploitation right like uh, that's where i felt that the government intervention and government regulation is in fact much more important and that's why i think what your topic was suggested was like uh, government backed fintechs or government backed methodology to somehow reach out to the unbanked is probably a better solution like it has been proven that fintechs can solve the problem and uh, some kind of government regulation intervention along with that will help the unbanked to a large extent that's what i should yes, you you must and i know you you a lot of work in fintech as part of your day job in in the consulting world but you you must certainly agree with me that a lot of times government intervention can be counterproductive when it comes to to fintech and alternative finance and you know giving populations that don't have access to traditional finance access to non-traditional finance don't wouldn't you agree with that yeah i would agree with that but also to counter that the intervention that i spoke about yeah should be just to protect the customer and not inhibit the fintech's activities in general that's the extent but yeah that's a very you know fine line between where you hinder the fintech versus you protect the customer so yeah i agree yeah like for example you know i'm sure you've heard but virginia just passed this law for sales based financing where a lot of the alt lenders who operate in that state are going to have to fill out these lengthy disclosures and stuff every time they originate a new loan and New York and California are considering similar or maybe even more restrictive measures and you know you you always see kind of the, the a lot of times you'll see the the government kind of playing both sides of the equation so on the one side they'll talk about oh we need more access to capital especially for underserved populations oh by the way here's like 20 new regulations that you guys should follow and i'm not sure there's 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 either not the appreciation of the fact that when you regulate an industry beyond a certain point you're actually restricting the supply and the number of suppliers in the industry or maybe it's maybe there is awareness of that but because they're politicians they feel like they can play both sides of that fence but i do feel like there's a certain level of contradiction in that whole equation yeah yeah i agree the only thing i can say to that is there is a very fine thin line the middle ground and it's difficult to find it so we're we're interested in the possibility of this private sector help for providing access to financial services it sounds like we're less interested in the idea of government kind of helping to make that happen or at least like tread lightly proceed with caution is that a good summary of some of what i just heard here yeah and i would say you know when in doubt or on the side of capital access guys i mean that i can cite you endless sources you know there's like the senate committee on small business and and enterprises that talks about uh access to capital being one of the major factors that determines whether an enterprise is going to survive or not right or you you can quote you know the black business alliance that says that capital access remains the most important factor limiting the establishment expansion and growth of women and minority owned businesses so there i think there and believe me for for those two quotes you can pr- probably find hundreds of others so i think there's enough data to say that 
you know, when in doubt, or on the side of greater capital access. And if you're considering an action or a legislation or something that is going to end up like look at the big picture and, and see that this is going to end up limiting capital access, especially when you talk about populations that are underserved, then I I feel like that, that's where people should start thinking twice about whether the cure is worse than the disease. Quick clarification on that. When you're talking about capital access and you say err on the side of capital access, and we're saying that fintech fintech players potentially are things that can help secure that capital access. Are you talking about th- and regulation ability? is one of the things that prevents new fintechs from coming online and prevents existing fintechs from growing to a certain size. Got it. So, so you were, you were talking about their ability to access capital, the fintechs themselves to in turn provide that capital access or even to, to operate legally. I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the hoops that people jump through. You know, okay. like there are entire banks in the US that exist and their sole purpose is because they they sit in in a state where there's slightly less regulatory burden and so you'll have fintechs that are issuing loans through that bank in order to get around regulations that are uh, overly restricted in in other states. So like you just wouldn't believe the amount of of overhead and the amount of burden that some of these regulations cause. And I'm not just talking about the level of regulation. I'm talking about the inhomogeneity of regulation across states. So I think both of these things are major concerns. And I'm not sure there's a general appreciation for how much that impacts the, you know, both the ability to start up new fintechs, the the viability of new technologies, the willingness of venture capitalists to get into this space. And then when you're in this space, the ability to grow to a certain size. But I I think there's a very, very strong correlation there. Got it. And a somewhat related comment. So this, the article that kicked off this discussion came from Curious uh, Magazine. I, I think they're a magazine, an online magazine, which is very centered around India, India context. So that's where a lot of this kind of came from. Do you guys feel like this topic is uniquely applicable to capital access for folks in India? Do you think it kind of applies elsewhere? I feel like it, it, I'd like to use that as a starting point and, uh, and apply it to a more global context where this scenario could potentially apply in different economies, different countries, but maybe uniquely applicable to India. But do you th- do you feel like it's confined to that context or no? I would agree that to start off, maybe you show that this succeeds in India and then you extrapolate that to the global level. But in general, I, I feel that, yeah, like at least in the context of India, the ease of capital access that you spoke about, that revolution has been brought about by fintechs mostly. And uh, it would not be correct to compare the regulations that currently exist for fintechs in India with that of the US. It tread much lighter, I would say. And that's why it's like, uh, I think uh, in the context of India, it's like both are pushing each other. Fintechs take one step upwards, then the government, okay, just, you know, glares at them maybe. Then they take one more step, then the government (laughs) calls them in for just talking to maybe. So that's, that's how I would put it. So a greater need in India in the US for this kind of action, possibly, and also a greater degree of flexibility that the fintechs are able to experience. Is that accurate, Shittish? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think the the specifics are, I think in this article, they're talking about more third world type of infrastructure. But I think the, the same concept applies everywhere, which is 
everywhere you go, there are always going to be populations that are underserved and populations that that don't have access to to major parts of the financial system. And I think there's a global need to kind of build more and better infrastructure to to enable that kind of access. I do like the fact that we've we've touched on our work with our FAIR program, our food availability improvement resource, and the different ways that that work touches on some of these topics that we we bring up in here. And if you haven't had a chance to check out those episodes where we we interview our um, nonprofit partners, encourage you to go check those out and learn a little bit more about the situation on the ground in some of these populations that they serve. I, I feel like that's particularly relevant aside. Our closer topic actually is a little bit related to this subtopic of regulation that we were just addressing. We've talked a fair amount about the the sort of impending antitrust move toward big tech that we're we're kind of on the cusp of, or there's different different kind of motions toward that um, here in the U.S. and and potentially in in other economies as well. This is a response to an article from Forbes that asserts that despite the competitive upsides to big tech antitrust actions, those could negatively impact U.S. national security. So this is very U.S. focused in this case, but it's an interesting example of some of those second and third order consequences of government intervention on enterprise that we've we've kind of addressed before. To expand on it just a little bit, there's this thought that tighter regulation could diminish the ability of the nation's leading innovators to keep innovating at their current pace. Kind of what you were talking about, Boaz, like regulation leads to restriction of supply, in this case, supply of innovation. The key to competing globally, or a key at least, is the pace at which a nation innovates. And when we talk about innovation, it doesn't just mean being inventive, it means bringing new products to the market and shaping the content of demand. All those words are from the the article that we're referencing. So for us to discuss as we wrap up here, does this potential downside of reining in big tech's monopoly lessen the upsides. Is that trade-off worth it? And there's a different question that you could answer if you'd like. Is there ever a good time to make an antitrust move since there will always be these ripple effects? Uh, the, the tertiary question of even if there was a good time, will the industry ever admit that it's a good time? Exactly. It's obvious that it is the size of the big tech which allows them to take the bigger risk, do the bigger innovation. That's that goes without saying. But there is also one more thing that we keep talking about that the competitive like level playing field, all, all those things while we uh, advocate for antitrust laws. But I think one thing that I remember from a conversation with Boaz uh, in some context last year, I think, that one of the biggest aims of startups is to get acquired by one of these big techs. So maybe there's not a need to level the playing field, rather admit that, okay, someone is the best and you become the best. If you can't beat them, join them, something like that, right? So, yeah, I'm also a bit conflicted. The upside versus the downside of antitrust laws. It's it's 50-50, like it could go either way right now. I'll just chime in a little bit. The, the only caveat I would give is that I know this article is supposed to be objective third-party article, but I'd, I'd be shocked if it wasn't placed by one of the tech lobbies out there because every time, whether it's Microsoft, 
like around the turn of the millennium or whether it was AT&T in the 80s or whether it was a Kodak in the 1950s. You can go back till the beginnings of antitrust, you know, with like the Sherman Act and all that standard oil every single time you you kind of get the same song from these guys which is it's it's a matter of national security and we're not going to be globally competitive because if you break us up then either you know you can fill in the blank on whatever competing nations people are afraid of whether it's you know today it's china in the 80s it was japan in the 2000s it was the eu but whatever it is that people are afraid of fill in the blank and you know, if you break up this company or this industry, then our like our international competitors are going to eat us alive and the U.S. won't be able to compete on the global stage. So I don't think that's a new song that I'm hearing. I think that one's been played a few times before, frankly. You think that this article was placed by a representative for big tech? Is that what you said? I said I'd be I'd be surprised if it wasn't. Yeah, because it, it just like this, the song just sounds exactly the same. And I've lived through enough of these cycles where it, it, it kind of triggers this reaction of like, OK, so this this is the party line. If you're a big tech monopoly that's trying to avoid being broken up or being, you know, ha- having some some competition on your hands, finally make it about national security. <laughs> Like, Absolutely. To avoid antitrust, make it about national security. It actually looks like the article was written by an independent author, or at least in an initial Google search while we're talking, who primarily writes about aerospace and defense topics. Lauren Thompson is the author, if we can reference him. But that is an interesting thought where it's it's like if, if this becomes a, a big enough threat to any any sector that's facing antitrust action okay how soon before they make it about national security and yeah. like, okay that'll solve it now we're we're definitely in the clear and d- despite the refrain having been played you know dozens of times before i don't think any enforcement of the sherman act or any other antitrust action has ever caused any kind of measurable erosion in the U.S.'s level of ability to defend itself against aggressors. So you say go for it anyway. This perspective may be true, but this downside is probably a lot smaller than it's made out to be. Not to put words in your mouth. No, no, not at all. And I know I was just on the last topic, I was going against regulation and now I'm saying, hey, where's the government? You need them. But well, context I happen matters. To be, <laughs> I happen to be one of the people that, even though I'm I'm a little bit of a Reaganite in that I I, I think that if you can do something through the private sector, it, it'll usually come out better baked than if you do it through some kind of central control structure. But I do believe that actually the ability to break up monopolies and and just enforce the idea of free market competition as being the primary model of commerce is one of those things that the government is both uniquely suited and probably the only player who's big enough and strong enough to be able to enforce that. And when you look at the historical cases, when they've done so, in the long run, I think for the most part, the the results have been beneficial, not only to society or to consumers, but even to shareholders of the company that's being broken up. Like if you look at AT AT&T, you know, that like the value of AT&T when it was broken up was just a small fraction of the the total, some total of the baby bells, you know, plus you had the surviving entity. So I think in general, when, when you look 
at, at places where the government has stepped in to try to create more competition and places where it's lacking, I think generally the results have been pretty positive. So you're openly threatening U.S. national security <laughs> if, we, if we believe that hyperbole. I mean, if you had just one defense contractor, is your country more or less secure than when you have like, you know, a dozen big defense contractors? I mean, you always want some level of competition, right? Not everyone's going to think of every idea. You know, this guy might be better at building drones. That guy might be better at building radar systems. The third guy might be better at building submarines. You can't just have everything under one umbrella. And I think when you do, which, by the way, I don't think people realize the extent to which we do today in, on the in the technology sector, but a huge amount of the technology that we consume is being controlled or owned by these, these top four, top five technology players. And so from my perspective, without doing any complicated math, it seems like a no-brainer. Maybe a solution is to have the big tech, you know, compete with each other on the same, same things, rather than them having one domain in which they are monopolies, you make them compete against each other like you like government does that so you are big enough to fight each other why don't you fight each other like they are clever enough not to fight each other but somehow that's enforced maybe as always or maybe it's not as always worth saying i think views and opinions expressed on this podcast are the sole property of the people expressing them and not the firm that is putting out this podcast probably goes without saying, but I like the discussion. I think it's interesting that this author brought this topic to the fore. And I think, again, while there's probably a ring of truth to it, the upsides to antitrust action are still beneficial enough that it's worth pushing through. I, I want to keep tabs on that idea of, like you talked about, Boaz, the party line. You know, it'll be interesting to just kind of anecdotally keep track of how often that does or does not surface in in new domains of antitrust action for whoever comes after big tech like the next the next thing to face antitrust if there will be again this comes up or or maybe there are other things that come up as kind of rebuttals to the antitrust topic yeah it's it's a long-term drinking game well thanks for joining guys uh and for digging into these topics with me as always appreciate the discussion thanks yeah. man. Fun. all thanks, right guys man.